The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, further to our usual updates, we feature an exclusive in-depth interview with former Air Marshal Edward Stringer, former head of Britain's Air Warfare Centre and of the Ministry of Defence's Department for Designing the Future Armed Forces, to discuss the logistical and strategic context of the war at this vital moment. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 17th of January, day 328. And to discuss the most recent events in Ukraine and around the world, I'm joined, first of all, by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols. I started by asking Dom for the updates from the military sphere in the past 24 hours. Battlefield updates. So the death toll from that Russian missile strike on the apartment block in Dnipro has risen to 44. That's uh, from the mayor, Boris Filatov, said this morning. Uh, President Zelensky said last night that, it, that the missile strike was a war crime, which we were talking about yesterday. There's no military significance to to that area. Um, today's British Defence Intelligence Assessment is saying that... Um, this was the first missile strike in about 15 days. Remember, just of late, we've been saying that Russia has been going for these waves, these pulses of missile strikes. So every, every seven, 10 days, now 15 days, which speaks of their continued strategy to try to break uh, Ukrainian national will and attack the, the critical national infrastructure, but also how they are, how they are um, running out of precision-guarded munitions and, um, and using other weapons in their secondary mode. And what I mean by that is so that the... Uh, the assessment is that this, the weapon that hit the, mis- the um, apartment block was an AS-4 Kitchen, named uh, NATO codenamed Kitchen, which is a, a big anti-ship missile. And defence intelligence is saying that that was launched from a Tupolev Tu-22M3 backfire bomber, uh, saying it's highly likely. Um, now, these are old, these supersonic bombers, but they are still very capable, developed in the 60s, been in service for a very long time. However, they are, they're, they're, they're the ones firing a lot of air-launched cruise missiles and, and other things. Now, this AS-4, as I say, an anti-ship missile. So when it's used in the ground attack role, its radar guidance system is very poor at differentiating targets in urban areas. It just you know, clearly, as you can imagine, the sea, even though it's big and wobbly, it is largely flat. Um, whereas an urban area has all sorts of spikes and hills and all the rest of it in it. And so the radar responds very differently to those situations. And therefore, this missile is is, is not as accurate as it should be. Uh, in, and even a, a, a somewhat older missile is going to be less accurate than, than a modern one. But even so, using these missiles speaks of a, of a depleted inventory. And it also speaks of, a, of the continued lack of mor- morality that you are using this in a, in a built up area and hence likely to. And in this case, as we've seen, hit an apartment block killing 44 people. Um, elsewhere, Davos, the, um, the World Economic Forum in the Swiss resort, it has, uh, has started, and uh, Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, he's there, and this morning he held talks with German Vice-Chancellor Robert Habeck, as we, uh, we mentioned him last week. But they were talking about further assistance for, for Ukraine, the transfer of weapons, and Mr Klitschko said, quote, positive decisions, unquote, had been made. 
gave no further details, but this is obviously all in the context of hoping Germany will will supply Leopard 2 tanks, or at the very least, um, provide the export permissions for other nations such as Poland, Finland and others who own uh, and operate Leopard 2s to send them to Ukraine. Um, Now, Mr. Klitschko said, quote, we discussed further support and assistance, in particular the transfer of weapons. Positive decisions have been made. Good news coming soon. He said that on his uh, on his Telegram app. Now, uh, Robert Habeck, say that who's also Germany's uh, economy minister, he spoke to Deutschland Funk Radio, as I'm sure we all do this morning as well. And he was uh, in the context. He's he's implying that things are moving in the in the in the right direction. He said, quote, when the person he was sorry, he was talking about the the resignation of German defense minister Christine Labrecht uh, on Monday, seen possibly as a, as a bit of a, a, a bit of a hurdle to this issue of, of supplying leopards or permit, permitting leopards. So uh, Mr. Habeck said, when the person when the minister of defense is declared, this is the first question to be decided concretely. So uh, I want to keep an eye on, but moving in the moving in the same direction as others. Speaking of which, last night in the uh, yesterday afternoon in the House of Commons, Ben Wallace, Britain's Defence Secretary, gave more details about the latest package of aid from Britain. So he confirmed that 14 Challenger 2 main battle tanks with their armoured recovery and repair vehicles are going to be sent to Ukraine. The armoured recovery and repair vehicles uh, you know, a very, very important asset to, to making that a capability because if the tank breaks down, you need something to be able to pull it out of the ditch and, and get it back safely to, to fix it. So that's just as important. Also, uh, AS90, 155mm self-propelled howitzer, they're going to Ukraine. Um, as I said yesterday, a somewhat older system, AS90, standing for artillery system of the 90s, to give you an idea of the, the sort of vintage we're talking about, but very capable. 155mm shell, range of about 25 miles. Um, one battery of eight guns to go immediately, two batteries in, in slower time. And also Britain's going to be sending hundreds more armoured and um, other protected vehicles, protected being those those what were called the dogs of war, the Coyote, Mastiff, Ridgeback and Husky fleet of vehicles that were brought in urgently for operations in primarily Afghanistan, a little bit of bit of Iraq. Um, but those kind of vehicles that, that don't have very heavy armour, uh, sorry, weaponry on them, normally uh, a GPMG, general purpose machine gun, possibly a 50 cal machine gun, but not much more than that. But they are very good protected vehicles for moving troops around the around the battlefield in safety. Uh, additionally, a 28 million pound manoeuvre support package that's going to be minefield breaching and bridging capabilities. Again, very capable. You cut. There's no point in having tanks if you're going to drive them through a minefield. You need to get get through that minefield so the tanks can then go and do their stuff. This is all what I keep talking about: the all arms capability. So tanks on their own, no good. Infantry on their own, no good. It's all part of the, the military orchestra, all working together. So you need all this stuff. Might be um, yeah, minefield breaching. Might be uh, might not be the, the the most sexy thing on the battlefield. You know, it's it's absolutely vitally important. Um, also, dozens of, uh, of drones going to be sent uh, for Ukrainian artillery, with a, a, a totaling about twenty million pounds. So, spotting for artillery, plus another hundred thousand rounds on top of the hundred thousand already sent, and hundreds of more sophisticated mi- missiles, precision-guided um, multiple-launch rocket systems, Star Street air defence missiles, um, and another equipment support package of spares to refurbish up to a hundred Ukrainian tanks. An infantry fighting vehicle. So a fairly big package there from the UK. The headline is the tanks. I mean, that's not in terms of a capability. 14 tanks on their own, as we've said before, 
don't offer a huge military capability, but but that could be the that could be the political game changer to, to unlock this issue of, of heavy armor uh, for Ukraine. Um, now, Mr. Wallace said in a in a sort of thinly veiled, I mean, jibe, barb is possibly too strong a way to put it. But he said, quote, after discussion with the United States and our European allies, it is hoped that the example set by the French when they sent or agreed to send the AMX-10 um, light tank uh, last week, the example set by the French and us will allow those countries holding leopard tanks to donate as well. I know there are a number of countries wanting to do the same. No one is going it alone. So he's saying there, he's basically saying, come on, the French have offered of the AMX-10. The um, US have promised Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, but very, very capable tank killers. And the Germans have supplied 40 Marder infantry vehicles. So come on, let's uh, let's move on the Leopards. And just finally, because it's been a, a feature of our, of our pod uh, a few months ago when I interviewed the Australian Defence Minister, in terms of training, so Britain is currently training, or rather there are Ukrainian uh, um, personnel being trained in, in basic infantry tactics in the UK, in Britain, with trainers from, from this country, but also Canada, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, Lithuania, Norway and New Zealand, oh, sorry, New Zealand and the Netherlands. So they're already there supplying trainers. Um, Australia has said that they will also send a, uh, a small contingent of, of uh, infantiers or people to train in, in infantry skills. So that bit of it as well, training the people, which is arguably the most important part of any military capability, that's uh, that's moving ahead. And there were 10,000 trained in the last year or since the February 24th invasion. That number is going to increase to 20,000 for the next cal- calendar year. So all in all, um, I think a good a good package unveiled yesterday more to do uh, but it keeps this momentum uh, remember i had that chat with the western official last week who said that this week is going to be characterized as the week that ukraine was given the means to win so that's not not a bad way to to kick the week off with uh, rishi sunak the prime minister's announcement over the weekend and more details on it as uh, as expected from ben wallace yesterday we have uh, a number of events later on this week, which um, for security reasons I won't say when or where, but culminating in what we do know, which is the next meeting of the Ramstein contact group on Friday. Ramstein, because that was the, the US air base in Ramstein, Germany, where the first meeting happened. This is US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin's initiative for military aid, so not economic aid, you know, loans, not humanitarian support, just straightforward heavy metal and, and anything under that banner. That's what Ramstein does. The next one of those meetings is on Friday, so hopefully the the um, this this uh, message from the from the Brits yesterday uh, continues that momentum and sort of leads up to um, big bang, all pun intended, on Friday in Ramstein. And I'll take a little break there. Thanks, Dom. To offer a few political updates. James Cleverly is currently on his first visit to the U.S. Capitol as Foreign Secretary for the United Kingdom. He's set to urge Washington to go, to go further and faster in backing Ukraine in his talks with Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State. He's already made certain remarks which have... Uh, Uh, led to a little bit of comment this morning where he's floated a rather thinly veiled criticism of Germany's reluctance to send Leopard 2 tanks and has urged Berlin as the manufacturer to provide the necessary permissions to allow the 14 other nations that are using the vehicles to send them to help repel Russia's assault. And, of course, Ben Wallace also has made similar remarks today, uh, which Don was talking about a moment ago. Sticking on that theme, 
at Davos, of course, at the moment, the World Economic Forum is meeting. The Polish president has also said that he hopes that some of Ukraine's allies, including Germany, would provide Kyiv with tanks. And I'll read the quote. We hope and are trying to organise bigger support for Ukraine. We hope a few partners, allies will give tanks to Ukraine. The Lithuanian president has also said that he strongly believes that Germany will provide Ukraine with leopard tanks. So I just mentioned these to show, as we predicted last week, that once one country, and in this case it has been Britain, started the ball rolling, that it seemed likely that pressure would build on build on Germany and other countries to provide military support. And indeed, that is what we are seeing. And as Don was saying earlier on, I think we can expect at Rammstein and throughout the course of the week there to be further announcements in this space. It feels like the beginning... The beginning of the end on this rather than the uh, the, the, the end of the beginning. Um, so uh, just one other thing also that's going on at the moment in relation to Davos. Mrs. Zelensky is currently there and has been making some, some quite um, uh, strong remarks. Um, not Nothing unusual than what we would expect normally. But again, I just think it's worth repeating this to emphasise what the messaging coming out of Ukraine is at the moment to the international community that are gathered at Davos. She's saying we are facing the collapse of the world as we know it. Russian aggression was never intended to restrict itself to the Ukrainian borders. This work will go further and make the crisis wider if the aggressor does not lose. So, again, quite an interesting perspective to be um, putting forward still this this argument that what is happening in Ukraine is relevant to the rest of Europe because it is containing Russian aggression and one could argue broader imperialist aggression around the world from other nations. And I think it won't surprise listeners to know that that tallies with a lot of our analysis on this podcast as well. There is something much bigger at stake than than uh, than just as what is con- being contested in the territorial terms in Ukraine. And as I say, Ukraine is very keen to to push that 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 idea. And it is one that has to be said that is very very strongly approved of and agreed in the Baltic states like um, like Sweden, um, like Finland, which of course have now joined NATO partly as a response to that fear that a, a Russia on the march may well sought to do something that uh, would be very, um, well, echoing some of the, the, the what's happened in Ukraine. So uh, just interesting on that. And just a couple of other interesting pieces uh, in relation to Russia. So Russia have said that they're going to make major changes to the armed forces from 2023 to 2026. Um, perhaps that shouldn't come as a, an enormous surprise given uh, the disastrous state of the Russian army following the initial months of the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, they've announced this, that there'll be the shakeup of the military structure and have said that in addition to the administrative forms, the, uh, reforms, it would strengthen its compact capabilities of its naval, aerospace and strategic mission forces. I'll read the direct quote from Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu. Only by strengthening the key structural components of the armed forces is it possible to guarantee the military security of the state and protect, protect new entities and critical facilities of the Russian Federation. And Kremlin spokesman, our old friend Dmitry Peskov, has also said that the changes have been made necessary necessary by the proxy war being conducted in Ukraine by the West, which, as we've already been commenting on, has been sending increasingly heavy weaponry to Ukraine. I think one can they can blame the West, but actually, in many ways, this has been something that that, uh, Ukraine have organized and conducted themselves in the sense that, as we spoke last week, there's a lot of belief now that part of the 
thinking behind the Ukrainians not being honest with the West about how, quite how well prepared they were was because they knew and feared that that would that would leak to Russia through certain countries' intelligence services. And so I think it's important to emphasize that, yes, whilst intelligence from the West, weapons from the West have proved absolutely vital, particularly for, for holding Kiev early on in the war, they, the Ukrainians have also been pre- preparing for this for much, much longer and in a manner that was much more effective than many people believed. And so, you know, whilst Russia can blame an attack the West and say that all the Ukrainian successes are purely on the West, I think that's actually a vast oversimplification of the reality. And just lastly, a story about Russia. Putin has boasted about the country's economy falling to just 2.5%, uh, despite the gloomier forecasts earlier in the year, following, of course, the um, numerous sanctions on Russia and the withdrawal of, of purchasing of most of, but not all, has to be emphasised, of its oil and gas. Now, this, I think, is interesting because, yes, on the one hand, one could argue that the Russian economy has proved more robust than many people predicted. Indeed, I said that at the beginning of the year, that that has been a surprise to people. But there's a lot of dark arts economics going along that are fiddling the numbers. And if one were to believe the analysis of the famous Yale paper now, which I know I cite a lot, um, that, that actually in the long term, this is unsustainable for Russia, that actually the economic conditions may well be in the temporary you know, time span of a year or two sustainable, that it is not sustainable for this to continue. So however much Putin may be boasting about it now, if we're thinking long, long term, Russia will not be able to keep it up to this level. And that is why, of course, part of the reason why we think that, that, that now thinking about this in terms of a long war is more strategically advisable than thinking about it as a short one. But it has to be said, and I want to end with this, uh, that if one is in Russia, the signs of this war in terms of the impact on the ordinary population, are perhaps more minimal than one might suggest. And I cite a, a piece that was sent to me, and I think a very interesting one, uh, published on the ABC website. That's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation by an author who's a lecturer in modern European history at Queen's University Belfast called Alexander Titov. And the piece is called 10 Months into Putin's War in Ukraine, Has Life in Russia Changed? And he's just visited Russia and talks about his experience of of walking around there and talking to people. And he says that, and I quote, despite all the media reports of doom and gloom as a result of Western sanctions, everything works just as before. Domestic banking is working. Salaries and pensions are paid on time. Ubiquitous e-commerce is bustling with activity and the shops are stuffed with food and consumer goods. In St. Petersburg, at least, I've struggled to notice any change in daily life compared to January 2021. He goes on, however, yet digging deeper, the impact of the sanctions is there. One issue that kept popping up was spare car parts, which have become increasingly more expensive and noticeably so. But even so, new suppliers are being shipped now. This goes pretty much for everything else consumer orientated. There are no shortages, even of Western goods such as whiskey. The supermarket shelves are fully stocked. And then he goes on and talks about how actually, whilst, of course, whenever one switches on the television, there are numerous reports 
about Ukraine. And of course, we've talked an enormous amount about the amount of propaganda that's 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 in Russia and the nature of that. He says that whilst you see reports on TV news and chat shows, he actually felt much more informed about the war in terms of the the kind of what was really going on in detail from following it in Belfast, not only because of Western media, but from the, his Telegram app. And uh, then and it felt like he learned more about what was really going on in terms of the how it was being understood in Russia, even uh, from from, I suppose, Western commentary and comment, Russian commentary on social media than actually in Russia itself, which I thought was interesting, given the amount of footage that we see of television shows. Apparently, whilst they are on, you know, very frequently, it's not as if whenever one switches on the TV, that's all you ever get. And that would speak to what Dr. Jade McGlynn said in her interview with me last week, that actually there is much more variety in Russian television and Russian propaganda. It operates in a lot more um, subtle ways than perhaps uh, many people think. But he concludes uh, in this piece that with, with some of the conversations that he'd had with people and says, my overall impression was that the invasion has reinforced people's pre-existing views. Those who were always opposed to Putin hate it, whilst those who are supportive of the government remain largely in favour. But the vast majority try to ignore it as much as they can. And I think that sums it up, really, which is the this feeling of just resignation that Russian seems to be a, a, a part of Putin's Russia and perhaps has been part of Russia for a long time, which is that large pop- the majority of the population are resigned to fate. They don't see themselves as being able to uh, to change anything. They keep their heads down for all the reasons that we've talked about in the past, unless, of course, things get bad enough. And that is the question now, is when will things get bad enough if they get bad enough for people to say actually enough is enough. So anyway, I just wanted to, I don't want to end on that pessimistic note, but I do think it's important important to, to emphasize that this is the reality of what's going on in Russia at the moment. But is it sustainable? Well, that's an open question. Turning now to our guest today, we are delighted to be sharing the studio with Edward Stringer, the former Director General of Joint Force Deployment and Director General of the Defence Academy, a previous commandant of the Air Warfare Centre and head of RAF Intelligence. He has had operational commands in Libya, Afghanistan, Iraq and the Balkans. As a Jaguar pilot and weapons instructor, he first saw action in the Gulf War in 1991. Dom, why don't you start us off with the questions? Edward, delighted to have you here. Thank you so much for coming along. Uh, We're talking about military capability, in particular the the recent moves in in terms of supporting Ukraine. But I'm very happy to, to deep dive into where military capability comes from, or rather how we end up where we are and work back from there. But can I just ask you off the bat, how should we think about developing military capability? And how do those considerations change when you're, when you're in contact with the enemy? Think, think us and other allies in Iraq and Afghanistan and Ukraine now. And then finally, how do you assess Ukraine's effort in this regard and the partners, those are the external partners' responses? Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think you could work back, actually, from the experience of being in contact in, in, in the war. And I'd make the case, I would say this when I was an ex-Director General Joint Force Development, um, that many battles in history are battles of force development. Uh, if you think about the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, Churchill famously said that the only battle you know, over which he lost sleep, um, that was a battle of force development pretty much across what we now call the domains, certainly the air, air, and mar- uh, air and maritime environment. And so the things you think about there are the need to be innovative, the need to experiment, 
the need to, and there's a phrase I'll probably come back to again and again, to keep refreshing your theory of winning. What makes your theory of winning more compelling than that of the opposition? And the key point there is when you get into the actual shooting war, pretty much everything is joint and combined. So if you're looking to work out what your force of the future might look like, uh, and a case I made in my last job, we don't do enough in the UK MOD of continually adapting our theory of winning to make the British way in war done in concert with our allies. That's made easier by the fact that we're the framework nation for the Jeff. And then having worked out what that compelling theory of winning is that keeps us ahead of our pacing threat, then you would turn around to the three services, which I think is what Levine always intended, and say, now go away and, and build your component of that. Instead, what we tend to do, post-Levine, I won't mean much to the international audience, but the, the reforms in the Ministry of Defence sent the money quite early out to essentially the, the three services, the three services have quite a lot of freedom to build what, what they want. We then hope that it will all stitch together and provide this seamless integrated force. So that seems counterintuitive if you've let three people go off and, and yeah, develop their own way in war. That might be, and that's quite an expensive way of doing it, and that might be why what we're seeing now, I think, is a quite thin locker across, as you look across um, UK defence, um, and so my final thought on that is I think it brings us round to, and maybe I'm introducing too many ideas into the first question, but you do have to think and ask, pose the question, where is the military strategic headquarters in this, in the UK? Where's the strategic headquarters responsible for thinking through that integrated, that joint vision, that compelling theory uh, of winning, and making sure that we find efficient ways to get the services to procure the material we need because as i look at it we don't have as much in the locker as some other nation states who on the face of it spend a lot less than we do on defense thank you i will come back to the thin locker in a moment because i think that's a i think i think that's it if we can if we can break into the thin locker there's a lot of answers in there but just on that last point you made there so who and where in british military structures should be waking up each morning just thinking how are we going to win the next war or, or is there not such a, a character and, and position? Technically, there's not such a character. Um, of course, when the war starts, uh, everyone will look at the Secretary of State and say, you know, how's the war office, if you like? Um, though I think the old Admiralty go back 100, 150 years. The Admiralty provides a wonderful model, actually, of how you should think about uh, a, a construct for both the governance and command at the senior political um, strategic level. Um, but if you look at the way it works in peacetime, the MOD works like a Department of State and the Permanent Secretary is the Chief Accounting Officer. Uh, uh, and it does tend to become an organisation that referees the punch-up over funding uh, b- between the three services. The primary military advice comes from the Chief of Defence Staff, but he doesn't have the authority of someone, like, for example, with the Swedes, where the senior military man is known as a Supreme Commander. And if you look at some of our our allies, I'll look at some of the Jeff partner nations. Uh, if you were to turn around to um, Lieutenant General Martin, Martin Hemmen of uh, Estonia, he'll very quickly say what his three responsibilities are, and they are being able to mobilise all the armed forces to, to defend the country, to be able to integrate that uh, with the whole national defence effort 
and uh, also to maximise the contribution from, from our allies. It's very much task-orientated. The elements of the MOD, and the one bit of me introduction you didn't mention, I used to be Director of Operations in the MOD for 15 through 17. Really, the frontline forces are only commanded once we've actually decided to deploy them on operations. And at that point, it becomes a bit, bit of a pickup game. So I think this is a bit of a void. And if you listen to um, Ben Wallace, Mr. Wallace, Secretary of State's uh, Rusi podcast, he does tend to suggest that maybe there's a, bit, there's a lack of a strategic brain at the heart of the MOD that's thinking always in terms of outputs and is threat-focused as opposed to a Department of State that tends to be inward-focused, thinking about the inputs and managing the budget. Thank you. T- uh, brilliant. I'm talking about the... The thin locker now, as, as, you, as you put it. So in terms of British military equipment, um, how much, where we, are, where we end up today, which we can speak more about in a moment, how much of it is down to uh, lingering ideas of British exceptionalism? Um, how much of it is the inter-service rivalry you, you mention? And, um, and how much is down to misplaced incentives starting right from that, from that military industrial link? I think there's quite a lot, in fact, far too much British military um, uh, exceptionalism. And it goes across all, all three services. I mean, people are probing into how many Challenger tanks we have at the moment, but uh, you know, the, uh, the army's not u- u- unique here. Um, let's do a thought experiment. Let's ask the same question in two different ways and see what answers you get. So you turn around to um, a British general and you ask the question, does the British soldier deserve you know, the best sidearm that we can procure for him or her? And what answer do you get? Of course. Of course. If you have any other question and say, if the British soldier isn't given the best kit possible and we give him a slight, or her a slightly rusty Kalashnikov, then they'd be useless, wouldn't they? What answer do you get? No, no, best in the world. Best in the world. Kit's not important. It's all about the map. You see where I'm going, you see where I'm going with this. Um, and I think what's coming out of um, Ukraine are just lessons we've always known, but the incentives in defence to chase your slice of the pie and to keep uh, adding requirements so you get the best kit you can in peacetime tends to pull us away from the ages-old lessons. And we ought to go back to some of the great books uh, written by what I would call the um, military historian economists, uh, Overy, Phillips O'Brien, David Edgerton, who point out that sensible uh, alliances in history have worked out exactly what you need to resource your theory of winning, and often it isn't sexy, it's jerry cans, it's ball bearings, it's liberty ships. They work out exactly the maximum level of capacity you need at that level, and then you knock them out by the, by the tens of thousands. Um, you look at the people who've lost the wars we fought against over you know, the last century, let's look at Nazi Germany, famous for revenge weapons, space rockets. I mean, the first space rocket... Uh, Fantastic sidearms and machine guns, but the hundreds of man hours needed to produce them meant they were out. They were outproduced, and we've forgotten the logistic requirements to work out the kit that you need to resource your theory of winning. Make sure you have lots of it, and make sure the logistic chains are you know, are simple. And that's why we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment these questions not about necessarily the quality of, let's say, a tank, any of the tanks. Challenger 3, Challenger 2, sorry, is a, um, you know, a very good uh, armoured fighting vehicle. Um, but if you've got three, four, five different types, you've got three, four, five different 
probably types of ammunition. You've got the power packs. You've got the reverse supply chains. You've got you know, the, five different maintenance schedules for the technicians to learn. This starts to become impossible to manage. So I think what Ukraine is, is showing us is the need to go back and think through not just the theory of winning from that, forgive the technical phrase, the sort of G3 ninja point of view, the two-up bags of smoke, the, the, the sexy bit we love talking about, the battle plans, and get back to thinking like strategic commanders, how can I do this at scale simply and reliably and make it as foolproof as possible? And I think that's one of, for me, the big lessons that comes out of uh, Ukraine at the moment. So on that, those political industrial concerns, I mean, you're never going to get past that because there's always uh, constituency politics or equivalent in, in other countries. There's always, I mean, what is it, the F-35, there's some part of the F-35 built in every single state in the United States, I, I believe, for various good reasons and political reasons. So you're never going to get over those those political and industrial concerns completely. And then we come on to issues like Challenger 2, not 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 in service anywhere else, so a very, a very um, niche slash needy logistic tale. Is it time for Europe and possibly NATO to build big gigafactories, producing power packs, producing running gear for tanks and guns and all the rest of it? And the answer might be yes, but how do you get past the political considerations? Or do you, is that where it stops and you just have to accept it? There's always going to be a compromise. You're quite right, isn't it? Pointless me sitting here and coming up with some you know, marvellous uh, uh, staff college solution that compl- can ignores the, the, the politics of, of, of the real world. But also, uh, you also have to turn around and say, if the grubby compromise you've come to just doesn't work, then what you're doing is spending money in peacetime to, pr- to promote a facade that will fall apart completely in wartime. Is that a risk you're prepared to take? And I could list in all three environments bespoke british only kit whether it was nimrod nimwax you know warrior type 45 etc etc where once we bought them the production line shuts down so what are you going to do in wartime where where are the spares coming from and increasingly it's not just the platforms themselves where the production line shut down but often they've got bespoke armament a storm shadow on tornado we bought the first batch that's the last batch and the production line doesn't exist anymore so there comes a point where just buying local if you can't keep production lines going is not allowing you to fight a sustained fight which means you're not meeting your declaratory uh, policy through for your in our case the ministry uh, ministry of defense so where would the compromise be well what bits need to be sovereign you've just said um, we've 140. We're going to have 148 Challenger threes. We've got 227, but it won't be that many that are serviceable. Uh, you know, Challenger twos and no production line to rebuild them. Is that viable? Do we need? If no one else is buying them, why do we keep that factory going? If you like, when we could share, go into a collaborative project. And so, if you look at Poland, um, and where did Poland figure in our relative? If you like medium-sized power analysis five certainly you know, 10 years ago poland's getting 980 extra tanks it already had plans for a thousand before it put an order in only a few months ago really for 980 top of the range k2 from south korea the first 80 are arriving at the moment the first 80 when the next 900 uh, by the time they get to the back end of that, they will be co-produced with factories in Poland. So Poland will actually have a tank production facility, even though it will have piggybacked on on the Korean technology. So my argument here is through 
through the Jeff, if you can't onshore everything and make it sovereign, which I don't think you can, uh, then why not friendshore with those people who share your value standards, political outlook, um, and are going to allow you to deploy and use equipment? Of course, that's the other issue. I'm sure you'll, you'll come back to ask me about that at the moment with the German restrictions, but also Swiss restrictions on, you know, on, on exports. Jeff, very similar politically minded, very pragmatic nations. Surely we could share there with um, uh, 155 amp, standardized 155 ammunition plants, uh, 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 more forward based, whether that would be the, um, the Baltic or Scandinavian Jeff countries. And if we were to standardize on some of the equipment, then, as you say, someone has the power plant factory, someone has, but these factories, there's such a demand that they keep going so your production lines can be scaled. And I think these are the questions that the Defence Command paper that I hope will be rewritten uh, on the back of the integrated re-refresh, I would hope the Defence Command paper would address some of these real-world considerations. How are we going to scale British military capacity in the light of the threats that we have now seen, seen realised last year? So you mentioned Estonia at the start, the Estonian, the, the head of Estonia's armed forces. So in terms of this, this mix, of course there are political considerations. You can't just go out and and think you're operating in a vacuum. Where do we look to see who's getting it, if not right, but then closest to to the to the right answer? And are there any lessons here in the development of armoured warfare that we can take from air? So either the F thirty five program or, for example, Tempest, the future. Well, Future Combat Air System, which is now called the Global Combat Air Programme, thank you. So the thing that comes after Typhoon, so we're talking 2040s, Britain, Italy and Japan have signed up for this group. Maybe others will come on board. But any lessons there? And But first question, who's getting it right? It's hard to point to one particular country. I think you can look at several that interest me. Um, I've always been quite close to Australia for, for many reasons. And they had a small air force, the Royal Australian Air Force, small but impressive. It's still half the size in manpower of the Royal Air Force. But then you look at what they have managed to buy because they have mostly gone and bought off the shelf. Um, and their front line looks very, very similar to the Royal Air Force at the moment. In fact, in some areas, bigger with half the manpower and less, less uh, expenditure. Poland, we've already discussed, its annual budget is about... 40% of ours, it's about 18, 18 to 20 uh, billion pounds, always difficult to exactly uh, compare. Finland, all right, very different strategic position, but nevertheless, let me linger here a little. Um, because it's sustained its strategic position, its theory of winning and updated it, and therefore it's invested in its equipment, sort of diverted into... Um, Iraq and Afghanistan and then sort of bought and got, got rid of a load of kit. It now has the second biggest artillery part in Europe after Russia. Um, it has 21,000 regular service people. But overnight, the war starts this afternoon, tonight, it will have 285,000 fully equipped, trained and exercised reservists and regulars in the field with another 900,000 at slightly slightly longer readiness but only a matter of weeks to a month once again resource the stockpiles are there for it would be classified but many weeks of uh, of of high intensity combat that's that seven billion pounds a year and the forces procured for that one task okay different strategic requirement to the uk but they can still go and do other things with them so the Finns have deployed take uh, played their part in coalition and as the uh 
very, very charming Finnish DA in London pointed out to me today, his captain, Finnish Navy. He took his large corvette, small frigate, out to take part um, in the counter-piracy operations in the Indian Ocean, where he, he could advise, I think it was an Italian uh, admiral running it at the time, that he thought he probably brought the only icebreaker into the Arabian Gulf. But you get my point. You can still use those forces in peacetime and send them uh, out on some of the smaller scale coalition operations where the kit doesn't have to be bespoke. And think, so I, th- I would also call for a bit of a rebalancing of our equipment program and our theory of winning into some much more defined, properly war planned tasks of which um, playing our part of the defense of the Jeff nations within NATO uh, would be would be one. And then really thinking through what our contribution, uh, given that I believe the integrated review won't change its Indo-Pacific tilt, what our contribution is to uh, helping to contain you know, the rise of a occasionally over-belligerent China. The answer there is not a D-Day-esque joint maritime amphibious force floating around um, in, in the Far East, in the South China Sea. But it may be something that looks a lot like AUKUS, which has already shifted the strategic balance, even by announcing it and starting to, to, to work together with our partner nations. And when you th- fold in things like space and cyber that can be done from the UK, then you do have a meaningful contribution. Um, and it's not the huge expense of mounting and deploying, as I say, that conventional joint, joint force. So a bit of imagination here, I think learning the lessons from some of the other forces, especially those that have started small and grown. We started big and shrank. That means we've got a lot of, if you like, the infrastructure of a big military, headquarters, bands, all of that, the way of thinking, we make everything complicated. Um, And we've got all that core stuff and not a lot around the periphery you actually fight wars with, force elements at readiness and their equipment. As other nations I mentioned, when you go and visit them, typically have very small ministries of defence, one or two people who make decisions quite quickly, there is less of that febrile competitive atmosphere that I'm sure you'll recognise that can sometimes, especially with an SDSR on, typify the ambiance of the, uh, you know, of, the, of the MOD. They just get on and do, and they all seem to get a more bang for their buck out of their defence budgets. And final question, because I can sense uh, Francis is, is chomping at the bit, but final question here. Um, and back to the, to the here and now in terms of gifting these, these British tanks to, to Ukraine. One of the ideas that's put out there, do you think it's time for a, a factory reset, literally and figuratively, to, to just gift the entire British tank fleet, maybe a load of warriors, but the stuff that was built to destroy Russian armour on the battlefield, the argument that's like, well, go and let it do its stuff, give it all to Ukraine. Russia's land forces are going to be weakened for, let's say, a decade. You can take risk now. If ever there's been a time to take risk since the Second World War, it's now. You can get rid of this armoured fleet that's tired, old, um, increasingly needy, bespoke, doesn't have the supply lines, doesn't have other other um, other people using it, and just start with a blank piece of paper. Maybe go to South Korea, wherever, start with a blank piece of paper. Is it time for a factory reset? And then, Francis, over to you. Well, I certainly think if you were thinking totally strategically uh, in terms of the output of the Ministry of Defence, what do our armed forces exist for? Uh, what's our national declaratory policy? Integrated Review said the acute military threat to us and our way of life in the um, Euro-Atlantic area, there's only one, and it's Russia. Um, it's now declared its intent, which is 
pretty homicidal plus. Um, we cannot say we don't know what the Russia's intent is now. It's on the ropes. Um, why would you not therefore want to remove that, that threat? You don't have to sit back and, and defend on the goal line waiting for it to come. It's now revealed itself. So to my mind, the, the approach now should be we need to remove that threat and then you look at how you would contain its, you know, its regrowth and, and one could argue that that will be good for, for Russia in the long run as well if it sees you know, the removal of the uh, gangsterish kleptocracy um, around Putin. Though I would never state that as an aim at the moment for, you know, for, for, for some obvious reasons. Um, to that end, then if you look at our, what well, let's face it, is legacy equipment. We've talked about the, what the other countries are doing buying brand new main battle tanks. There'd be a great turret on the Challenger 3, but the running gear is still going to be, oh, still, still going to be 30 years old. Warrior is very old. And I suspect, reading between the lines, the announcement on AS90 indicates that we've pretty much decided to get rid of that now. And I think you know, uh, Ben Wallace had, had talked about accelerating the um, deep fires program uh, for the army. And I think we've realised that programme therefore is probably beyond, uh, beyond, beyond recovery. Uh, the counter, of course, says, but no, we need to defend ourselves. We've got NATO commitments and therefore we must always be prepared. Well, I would argue that at a strategic level, that's what I would call the Stormans fallacy. You know? um, I'm sorry, you, you can't have that. It's the last, last one and someone might want it. Yeah, but the task it was bought for is required now. Why do we need to keep it? Why do we need to keep it on the shelf? And look at those who would really worry about that. Uh, the Secretary General NATO, uh, uh, for NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, has come out and said, you know, we must see Russia defeated in Ukraine, and it's in all our interests to see Ukraine uh, you know, prevail uh, and defeat this Russian invasion. And those countries that would be most worried by our losing that you know, contingent readiness defensive capacity are those who are on the front line, like the Estonians, the other Baltic nations. They, of course, are the most um, forward in giving up what little they've got. I think the Estonians and others have given up about a third of their, 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 their defence capacities and have spent fortunes. They're the ones on the front line. If they are saying it's in all our interest now to defang the Russian threat so it can't really threaten us for the next, I would argue, at least 10 years, and if we get it right more, I think we should be listening to them. So you mentioned a couple of types. I've just covered AS90, I think. I think Warrior is in the same, in the same boat. Um, there's probably more political baggage of the sort you mentioned earlier around, around the Challenger program. Uh, but that might be an area where one could be bold and one would look and say, how do we simplify land equipments across? Do we really gain anything by having an indigenous tank capacity that only reconditions up to 148 and we've got no overseas sales is this now the time to go into Team Leopard or Team K2 or one of the others and start building as a framework nation around the Jeff this, or what we talked about before, this idea of a, a much more systemic, well-organised force with simplified and reliable, sustainable logistics. So I would like to see the options there really well war-gamed and um, one, one hopes Secretary of State Ben Wallace is, is asking those questions. Don't know what the answers would be, but it'd be good to see the calculations and the working. Thank you. If I could just jump in there. You've spoken fascinatingly about logistic chains and the importance with regard to resources in war. Just wonder what your view is on Russia in this regard. 
this is obviously a country that many argue that now it's starting to mobilise more and more, that it may be able to improve its logistic chains over time, as of course it managed to do in the Second World War. Or do you think perhaps actually that it already fatal mistakes have already been made? It's probably closer to the latter than, than, than the former, Francis. The... Um uh, my take on this, um, and those interested, I put a paper in Policy Exchange back in October. You can go and hunt it down online. It's quite easy to find. Um, this comes back to the fact that when nation states go to war, you've got to go to war with the grain of the political, social, strategic culture that you find. Um, the Russian Federation of today is not the Soviet Union of 1941. Uh, it is a kleptocracy around Putin, and like all gangster-based systems, there is no trust anywhere between anybody. And those military folk in the audience will know that when you come to do those difficult, stitched-together combined arms operations with which you opened this this, this broadcast, Dom, um, that relies on everybody trusting everyone else, working together, being able to plan. That just doesn't happen in these kleptocratic societies. Um, people have looked at the... Russian Air Force, for example, is probably the most stark example here. On paper, it should have swamped the Ukrainian Air Force within a couple of days. It still can't, and it hardly even operates over Ukrainian airspace. And that's because air operations require um, really closely choreographed, supporting, mutual, um, individual sub-operations for the whole to come together. Uh, Russia doesn't think or work that way. So what you're seeing in the land environment and their inability to pull together just basic combined armed ops, you're seeing sort of the absence of that in spades in the air environment. That comes down to a culture. You're not going to change that culture overnight. And some of the, some of the better officers who may in their heart of hearts have known this are probably now dead as a result of the first year of the war. For them to turn this round, they're going to have to be honest with themselves. That society cannot be honest with itself. I do not therefore see uh, the Russians being able to turn around what we would call the conceptual component of fighting power. They won't be able to be honest with themselves, think this one through and generate a force of integrity, a force of from the officers and NCOs down that trust each other. Um, they're going to have to try and keep bludging it through with the, with the moral values and standards of the Wagner group. So I do not see them turning it around anytime soon. Thank you. And just staying on air operations, you were once a Jaguar pilot who saw action in the Gulf War in 1991 and in the no-fly zone operations that followed that. There have been some calls for no-fly zones in Ukraine, especially around the nuclear power plants like Zaporizhia, perhaps even Kiev itself. Do you think that's advisable and, and a possibility in the months ahead? Um, actually, no, I don't. Um... Because what people don't get about, uh, or many people don't, I'm sure you do, Francis, but um, uh, don't get about no-fly zones, is, is it's not some form of benign air policing where you fly around, tap someone on the shoulder and say, oi, mate, you shouldn't be here. Uh, a no-fly zone is where you generate air supremacy, gusting air dominance. And to do that, you have to look at the surrounding airspace, in fact, the whole battle space, the battlefield around. Um, and that means removing surface to air missile threats. It means removing hostile radars. You sanitise the whole airspace so you can operate in it. 
And as soon as NATO started to do that, it would find itself in a fight and therefore a shooting war with the Russians. That is probably one of the few strategic outs that Putin has at the moment, is being able to frame this as NATO going on the offensive. And that's what it would look like. And I'm pretty sure he could sell that um, around the world to the global south. So I think we will probably have to stick, and I would like to see a bit more of this, we'll have to stick with providing Ukraine with surface-based air defence systems that will help them defeat, well, perhaps even the missiles that you mentioned at the start, certainly some of those uh, slower drones, keep the Russian Air Force back flying around um, uh, in its own airspace and then try and protect those sensitive bits of critical national infrastructure, imperfect as it is, such as the nuclear power stations, by doing what they're doing now, but, but doing it better. And I think we are seeing now from um, Germany, Iris T, for example, America with the Patriots, we are now seeing some of the higher-end systems going into Ukraine. I think that's the right balance. And I agree with that, with that analysis wholeheartedly. Is there any scenario, though, where you could see that Britain or NATO would have no choice but to intervene in Ukraine? No. Uh, this, the, it's a very interesting point, this, isn't it? People, people, if I go back to and expand your question, people say, well, NATO has failed to deter. Actually, NATO has deterred incredibly well. One of the things you have seen is Putin has stuck to some red lines, and one of them is not to get on the wrong side of not to get on the wrong side of NATO, not to trigger NATO. And uh, I think the the proof of that was the speed with which Finland and Sweden joined NATO, even though they're both very capable um, countries in the, in their own right. And I think now would realise they're even more their defence plans are even more capable than they, than, than they realised, they don't want to be in the position of having to give up some of their territory and then regain it. And they've realised that Article 5 is something that, 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 that Putin respects. Um, I never say never on anything. Um, I don't think, though, for that reason, you will see NATO because it's a defensive alliance. If you took away the nuclear question you added in some form of atrocity with which the world really could not put up with which it would not put, um, then the geopolitics look similar, don't they, to something like you know, Gulf War One? But I think we're a long way from that. And, and, and I think at the moment, the West wants to keep this as, as it is. Uh, NATO getting involved, qua NATO, completely changes uh, the game. Thank you. Uh, just changing tack slightly, you're a trustee of the Imperial War Museum here in London, a very, very renowned and distinguished institution for our international listeners. So evidently, history is never far from your thoughts. Just first of all in that, where do you think that Ukraine ranks in the significance of post-World War II conflicts? Well, I think it is one of the most significant, uh, if not the most. You know, it's hard to think of of, of one that's more. I mean, you think the ones that, gr- that grabbed our imagination as, as, as youths. I was 10 years old at the fall of Saigon. Um, the conflict since have uh, grabbed our ad- Im- imagination one way or another. If you're a Brit, the Falklands in 82, Gulf War in 91, they tend to come along about once every 10 years. They seem quite big at the time. Ousting Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, uh, important regionally, certainly important uh, for Kuwait, but this is one that, to me, uh, is a system-changing event. Uh, you're talking here about the first conflict I can probably since Korea. I don't remember Korea, where nuclear weapons have framed 
the entire geopolitics of it. Um, it is a war that involves one of those, one of the United Nations P5 nuclear powers uh, in Russia, uh, and certainly in the diplomacy and the framing of the conflict, it you know it pulls in and has pulled in obviously um, China as well. That's clearly having an influence on on the actions of Putin. How Russia comes out of this at the end can alter global geopolitics in a way that none of those other conflicts have. And that's why I say I think we need to be thinking about this and our support for Ukraine in a way that goes beyond, well, we'll scrape the bottom of the thin locker and we'll hand you a few things that we can do without. I think this is so important that we have to treat this as the war that we are involved in, the system-changing event of our lifetimes. It's just one that, luckily for us, it's not our soldiers that are having to do the fighting and the dying. Thank you, and and I I agree as well on that. I think in terms of China, which you mentioned there, what's your perspective on China's actions since the war began? Do you see them as a benign influence over Russia, trying to to stall some of the actions that that perhaps Putin wanted to do? Or do you actually see the opposite, that, that China have enabled a lot of Putin's activity and that things could get worse? You know, there's still talk now about perhaps there being moves on, on Taiwan in the next year or two. Just very, very interested in your perspective on China's role in all this and what it could mean for them. Um, I, I don't try to set myself up as a, as a sinologist. I think Overall, think back to Samarkand, the SCO gathering. Um, despite some of the public displays of support, and you will remember before uh, this war started, um, the declarations, which were much more strident from Moscow than they were from Beijing, of uh, this, this mutual friendship, uh, I strongly suspect behind the scenes... Um, Xi Jinping has made it clear what he thinks about someone using nuclear weapons uh, in a conflict like this. Um, you'll see that Modi has done has done something you know, very similar. Um, I would imagine um, that uh, Biden is having several grown-up conversations as well with uh, with Xi Jinping, um, and that might be even conditioning. Uh, some some of the, some of the aid that we give, I don't know, but that would you know that that would might make sense. Um, I suspect, therefore, that overall, Xi Jinping, once the war has started, has acted more to rein Putin in and control what uh, the uh, the Russians get up to than encourage it. Though you could probably make the counter case before. Sadly, until the archives reveal all sorts of things in a few decades' time, um, I don't think we'll ever, we'll ever really know, Francis. Thank you. Just a couple more questions from me. One is from a listener, actually, making a good point, which is why in the West do we talk so often about exactly what weapons we're sending? Would it not be more effective to keep it all under wraps and just say we're sending something and then let the Russians or whichever side find out for themselves what what the West is sending. Why do we do that? Why is it an effective tool in warfare to be saying about what we're sending? I, I don't think it's, a, it's necessarily an effective tool in warfare. I think it's just the reality of the politics of it all. Um, and some nations made more about what they were sending uh, than others. Um, and as you see, even the, even the Western nations have very different strategic cultures, do they not? Uh, just, you know, just just go a thousand miles across, uh, not even that perhaps, 
from north to south across Europe, and you'll find some very different public attitudes. And therefore, politicians have to sell this to sell this differently. Um, I certainly wouldn't read too much into it, and I don't think revealing what's being sent is in any way breaking some massive great OPSEC or of any real advantage to the Russians. Uh, and if that's the way the politics has to play out, uh, so be it. What do you see the end game as looking like in Ukraine? Do you think that the Ukrainians will take back Crimea? And if so, what will that mean for the war? I'm just very interested in how you think this, this could all play out in the long run. Uh, my answer to this since the start has been that defeat of Russia is defeat of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and that what one was trying to get to was a position whereby uh, when Zelensky felt he was in a position politically to negotiate, uh, then um, he ought to be able to negotiate from a position of of strength, if you like. Um, Now, I, and what does my opinion matter, but I always sense that Crimea might be the stumbling stumbling block there, and I think it was around other capitals in you know, in, in, in Europe. Um, however, war itself changes the political dynamic. And this is something we don't feel as much in the West, and this is where we've got to be politically uh, empathetic and imaginative. Um, and Dom started off with his update, and we've seen what's happened in Dnipro, as evidence of tortures mounts, as more cities are retaken, as Ukrainians really start to think about the numbers of children and other families that have been forcibly relocated to Russia, etc., etc., then they will their attitudes are already hardening, and they are not going to want to negotiate away uh, uh, away their territory. So I suspect. Um, it is going to get uh, quite difficult um, towards the end game here, more difficult than it was at the start. I think you, Ukraine will want uh, Crimea back and to try and guess at the moment where the relative state of the polities are going to be, how powerful Putin is going to f- feel he is, how, what, what the backing he's got of that Russian polity, which he does have to keep on side. Um, all that will will add the nuance to what is and what isn't uh, possible in the end game. So I see uh, the Russian armed forces in Ukraine being degraded massively. And I think there will come a point where most of the territory of February the 23rd has been regained by about halfway through the year. Then there are going to be some very interesting political conversations. Thank you very much. Dom, do you have any other questions? Just one quickie, if I if I may. Um, Ed was a, a, formerly worked in the intelligence world. Just just be interested in your opinion on how the, the West, the collective external partners of Ukraine, have used intelligence in this war, specifically to get that intelligence, very sensitive material, into the public domain. I've spoken at, many times on this on the pod about about talking with Western officials. That convention has come in. It seems to be working. It seems to have been it's sticking. It's respected by the journalists that are privy to those conversations. Um, but just how do you see the use of intelligence and the speed with which it's able to get out into the public domain? Is this, a, is this the benchmark now for, for future conflict? 
Oh, so many points on uh, to be had there. I, I mean, it's, it's a benchmark for future conflicts, but only on the way to something that's even more so. Uh, and, and, uh, and could I just take a minute, maybe, to address some of the some of the concerns that are out there uh, when people say, "Well, we heard a lot about information warfare before. We heard a lot about information operations, grey zone. That's all rubbish, isn't it? This is hard military ops." Well, as someone who in the previous job was responsible for the team that drafted things like the integrated operating concept, I'll absolutely stand by those. What you're seeing are grey zone operations. or that They've just accelerated. They are going on in the background. Every time you or I, or no doubt many of the listeners to this broadcast, admire one of the really clever um, short clips that comes out of a Kiev, the Kiev meme farm, and we go, isn't that clever? That's brilliant. We're the target audience. We are being... We are being manipulated. We know that. I'm happy to be manipulated. And it, you know, it, has, its, it, it has its effect. I realise actually that it's, it's telling me where politically Ukrainian society is going. I want these people to be able to join you know, the family of, of, of Western nations. There's a grey zone operation going on in the global south, which Russia got well ahead of us in, in engaging you know, the global south. And then Luckily, we, we, we came back in when we suddenly realised the importance of uh, the export of grain, for, uh, uh, for example. And all that information stuff where we've talked about dual use, well, Musk-Starlink has, has, has been vital. We are no doubt. I don't know what we're going to... I genuinely don't know, so I can't give away any secrets, but I'd be very surprised if we, if, if, if we aren't providing information. Of one. But what's intelligence now when all sorts of commercial space providers can provide imagery at at pretty low cost that five certainly 10 years ago was the promise of one or two very high-end superpowers that could afford some of those some of those big satellites so all this stuff's being democratized Um, and I think the one of the really interesting things that will come out of this when we analyze it is to what extent this is the first war of the information age and to what extent those dual-use technologies the prevalence of information we've seen targeting via social media have we not even the russians blamed the targeting on their troops probably erroneously but on their troops ill-disciplined use of their their mobile their mobile phones so all the stuff we worried about when we deployed the british army into estonia 2016 uh plan 315 and we thought about this and put a lot of rules in place actually it turns out we were ahead of the Russians who haven't thought about it uh, and exactly what we feared is now happening, but it's happening to them. So to answer your question, I think what you're seeing is the democratising of information and wars are no longer fought with just the high-end intelligence that used to come through SIGINT, if you like, the, the offspring of Bletchley Park. And what you're seeing now are those who can man- manipulate all the available, I've not even got into the data word yet, just all the available you know, information, commercial, add in the high-end stuff, that still the superpowers do best and those who can make the best and quickest use of it will prevail in future wars. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Stringer, for your time today. Absolutely fascinating, as our regular host, David Knowles, would say. Uh, Just one final thing before we go, which is, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners, perhaps on any subjects we haven't covered today? We're always very sensitive of giving all of our guests the airwaves on anything that perhaps is on your mind that may not be on ours. What I yes, I think what I would say is for certainly for the the, the UK listeners, we've got the f- refresh of the integrated review happening, 
Uh, and one would hope, as I mentioned earlier, a refresh of the um, Defence Command paper. If we don't really think through the whole of societal lessons that come out of Ukraine, so I hope someone's interviewing the head of Ukrainian railways, for instance, then we are not going to be able to think through adequately how with the limited spend we've got on defence, we are going to be able to cope with the threats of the future. I think what the war reveals, certainly in the relative weakness of Russia, that we can do it, but we can only do it if we uh, really apply imaginative minds and we won't do it if we just take cherished thinking from before and try and cherry-pick the evidence to support preconceived ideas. So that's my plea, I think, is for us to really review what we're finding out here. Because let's face it, this is a war between two, compared to the Americas and the Chinas of the, you know, of the world, these are not two countries who at the start of this were at the, you know, the forefront of military prowess, necessarily. Uh, and yet, we're all going to learn from it. If you imagine if you could fold in the capacities and the know-how of the genuine superpowers, just, my God, what would that look like? That's quite a scary thought, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have it. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get three months access to our website for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments on our new email address, which is ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and now plan to reply to even more of them. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today, on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.